You're listening to the Baptist Bulletin Podcast, a program dedicated to advocating for a biblical worldview by encouraging Christian growth and ministry from a biblical perspective. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the BB Podcast. My name is David Gunn and I serve as Director of Regular Baptist Press. And my guest today is Mike Hess. Now, typically, Mike, you're going to be hosting and or co-hosting these uh, episodes in the future. Uh, but today you are serving as my guest and uh, our interviewee. So, uh, so welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Mike has served as national representative of the GARBC since, well, let's see, you, you were voted in in June of Correct. 2018. Correct. And then started just a few months after that. So, well, just uh, started a few weeks after that. Uh, well, uh, sure. Yeah, started uh, mid-July. Okay, yeah. very good. And Mike is my boss, so I do have to be careful what questions <laughs> I ask uh, this time around. Uh, I thought we'd start out with just some kind of big picture questions regarding the church, uh, the role of the church, the influence of the church. Uh, so, so let me start with kind of a general one. Uh, you're stepping into an interesting role heading up a fellowship of churches at a time when Christianity's cultural influence is arguably waning uh, and at a time when massive social and ethical changes are sweeping across Western civilization. So what do you see as the biggest challenges that the Christian church is facing today or will face in the next few years? Yeah, it's a great question, David, and one that I think every pastor here who's listening is wrestling with. It comes down to this. Can I really trust the Bible? Hmm. And is the Bible that the pastor preaches, is that trustworthy? And is it authoritative to speak to the issues that everyone's fighting about today? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the biblical view on marriage in our Western culture that simply has a disdain for absolute truth can we really preach that? And is that really true? And since we, of course, hold to an authoritative view of the Bible, that it's sufficient, that it is God's word. Uh, one of the things that I see going on over and over again that uh, we're facing today that we didn't face many years ago is the fact that even though obviously there were non-Christians, there were very few people that said there is no such thing as absolute truth. Right. And we're finding a number of individuals who have grown up in church who wonder that very thing. Right. How did this all happen? Uh, how did we get here? Why am I here? What happens when I die? People who have heard the gospel and have grown up on solid biblical preaching are asking questions that you would never think a young person exposed to biblical truth w would ask. And then the other one, along with that, that... Um, the Christian church is facing today and, and, and is going to be on the radar for the next few years that the Lord tarries is, is how do we interpret the Bible? What is the proper interpretation of scripture? It's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to preach it as well. It's one thing to say that it's, it's absolutely true, but how do I properly interpret it? Because if you don't have the right interpretation, you're going to have bad conclusions. Mm. Bad conclusions leads to bad living and, and horrific doctrine, and it all ties together. And both of those challenges can lead and, and have led to all kinds of doctrinal compromise Correct. and aberration. Uh, certainly we've seen uh, the mainline denominations just go off a cliff right. doctrinally. 
And uh, we were talking just the other day about a, a United Church of Christ up in Canada now where the pastor has come out to her congregation as an atheist. Right. That all kind of starts with what you're talking about, a, right. a lack of appreciation for Scripture as absolutely true and absolutely authoritative, doesn't it? Right, right. And so you would say then, I, I imagine, that a regular Baptist approach to Scripture and ministry uh, not only helps us to face those challenges, but is kind of the only way to face those challenges, right? Right. If, if the Bible is just kind of something that informs your thinking, but it doesn't direct your thinking, then the Bible is really not the compass that's directing you as to what direction you're going in. So what we have a real danger because we have a culture that says, I really respect Jesus. I admire him as a teacher. He's, he's a great guy. And he taught a lot of moral things. And boy, I'd really like to be like him. But I just reject his word. <laughs> and, and if yeah. you reject his word, then, then you, have a, you have a problem here. You have a real conflict. Uh, you're not going to know him the way God intends for you to know him as uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died in our place on the cross as a final perfect sacrifice, uh, was buried, rose again from the dead. And either you turn from your sin and you and you turn to him, or eternally you uh, will live uh, under the wrath of God yeah. for all of eternity. So I tie that in with, okay, we as regular Baptists, which is not a term we use a ton, but, right. but it does mean something. Sure. It, it, has, it has some connotation to it. We have what you would call a hermeneutic, which is nothing more than, a, than an interpretation of Scripture that is a plain, literal hermeneutic, a plain reading of the text. And so that means we want, we're going after what the original author was trying to communicate to his original audience. And with that said, a text cannot mean today what it did not mean then. Or a text cannot mean today what it did not mean then, right. what I'm trying to say. Right. So um, that's where we come in and, and to belong to a, a group of churches, and, and it ties in with this, we're, we're a fellowship of churches. The hope of the world is a local church. The, the, the hope of changing marriages and families and changing hearts is the message that the local church has been mandated to proclaim, yeah. and that's the gospel. And I like how you tie that into the person of Christ, because that's really what's at stake here, isn't it? Right. If, if we don't get the message right, if we don't get our source of authority right, then we're not going to arrive at the proper conclusion, right. which is to know and follow and love Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And he kind of actually, in his person, uh, settles those challenges we talked about earlier, doesn't he? Uh, our, our culture wrestles with the question, what is truth? Is there mm -hmm. absolute truth? Jesus Christ says, I am the way and the truth mm -hmm. and the life. And he also answers that question about authority when mm -hmm. he uh, repeatedly throughout his ministry turns back again and again and again to the scriptures. It is written, it is written, it is written. The scriptures mm -hmm. cannot be broken. And so we as regular Baptists are, are, are just trying to honor the standards that he set up, mm -hmm. Right. And that's not to say that we're the only ones who are sure. doing that. There are plenty right. of other Bible-believing groups out there, but uh, we would be united in that general approach to understanding Christ by understanding His Word. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair right. way of putting that? Correct. Yeah. 
Well, let me shift gears a little bit. Um, one of the interesting trends that we're seeing in church circles today is that denominational loyalty or network loyalty is trending downwards. Uh, it used to be the case that pastors and churches, to one degree or another, uh, tended to see their identity, their theology, their ministry priorities as informed by the ecclesiastical group that they belonged to or, or were affiliated or associated with. And that's just decreasingly the case today. So what do you say to the young pastor or the young pastor in training who says, I'm on board with your association doctrinally, but I don't really feel the need to be involved in a network of churches. I'd, I'd rather just kind of do my own thing. Yeah, <clears throat> great question, because first of all, uh, biblically, what you find in the early church, that, that's just not how they functioned. And, and you, I know the argument that you would say, well, that was early in the church and church history, so they had to function that way. And I would say, well, we still need to today. And, and I would say to any young pastor, uh, when I became a pastor, I had like no network of friends at all. Hmm. And it wasn't until I went to pastor's fellowships and uh, became friends with different men and our families ended up becoming friends. But you are not, if I could say one thing to young pastors with that kind of mindset, you are not better off going in alone than you would be if you were connecting and locking arms with other like-minded pastors and churches to help us in great commission work of making disciples. Look, everywhere you go, people love to identify themselves with a certain tribe, a certain team. Right. So, you know, driving to work in the morning, I see uh, many Cubs decals, Bears decals, and about once every month I'll see a White Sox one. <laughs> sure. So, that's but a, there's, that's a pretty good ratio, right, right? So we see all kinds of loyalty: people to their college teams, people to their alma mater, people to uh, the neighborhood they grew up in, even the brand of shoes that they wear. Exactly. Yeah. The the whatever it may be, they like their branding, and I would say that if you're going to align yourself with a group, the number one factor you should consider is whether or not you align with them doctrinally. Hmm. Do you align doctrinally? You might have a lot of philosophical agreements. That's great. I have that with a lot of groups. And you might have a lot of methodological agreements. That's wonderful as well. Man, I've learned tons of methodologies from, from different groups. And it's wonderful. It's helped me a lot as a pastor. But... What you need to do in a, in a local church context, if, if churches are going to come together and, and network together, there has to be the doctrinal alignment. Sure. And again, you are not better off going it alone than you are uh, partnering and locking arms with other people. And so the kind of networking you're talking about, um, th that does not necessarily challenge or undermine local church autonomy. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about giving up, you know, a congregational uh, sovereignty or anything mm, like no. that. We're talking about acknowledging the fact that uh, a lone ranger approach to ministry is necessarily going to be weaker and less well equipped to handle things than a, 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 a an arrangement such such as you're talking about, right. where you're locking arms with like-minded believers. And, uh, and and trying to find ways to cooperate together in in the work of the ministry to the furtherance of the gospel and mm -hmm. the church of Jesus Christ. 
And it sounds to me like you're, you're also not just talking about having a social get together with, right. uh, with other pastors from time to time, right. but, but truly, uh, a, a situation where iron is sharpening iron and, uh, and ministries are being sharpened and strengthened through strategic networking opportunities. Correct. Is that a fair way yeah. to put it? Yeah. And, and that's what I lived through personally sure. as a pastor, especially as a very young pastor. Hmm. You kind of feel like you're you you are going it alone. Like uh, you know, I, I've maybe got a little bit of training and and a, and a few ideas about where I'm going to go, but uh, but how do I do this thing? Correct. And yeah. and that's just a, a a huge challenge that that young pastors face and struggle with. Right. And just figuring out kind of the the daily grind of ministry, but also some of these uh, longer term philosophical questions mm-hmm. and. Uh, and, and and you would say you you personally were tremendously helped by by just uh, networking with like-minded sure. pastors. Yeah, you know, to be frank with you, you know, my background, I did not have your your typical GRBC background. Did not okay. grow up in a GRBC church and didn't go to a GRBC college early on. So my very first pastors fellowship, I'd been pastoring like a week or a week and a half, and here I was in a very small church in a very small town just moved my family, very small children at the time. And I was invited to a pastor's fellowship in Bunker Hill, Illinois. And I drive in and I'm thinking, I'm not sure I've ever been in a town this small. <laughs> and met a few of the pastors and and, and thought to myself, you know, I, I just don't know if I fit in with these guys. I don't know if I'll get to know these guys. Well, long story short, after about a year, those many of those men became some of my best friends. Hmm. And it's not just learning from other guys and coming together and talking about life and doing stuff together as families and getting ministry ideas and sharing your burdens, but to also understand you're not alone in this struggle. Right. We all have different struggles in local church contexts. And it's wonderful, not just when pastors can come alongside and help one another or pastors' wives, but also when churches can come alongside right. and help one another. And we see that a ton in our association because one day, let's say your church is thriving today and it's blossoming and God is blessing and people are coming to know Christ and you're regularly seeing people baptized and people coming into membership. Wonderful. Praise God. That's great. We yeah. rejoice with you. But there may come a time of spiritual dryness where, where maybe you lose a pastor sure. or, or something happens in the church that's spiritually catastrophic and it, it hurts the church in many ways. And uh, maybe the glory days were in the past. And it's good to know, as, as happens often in our fellowship, another church or churches will come alongside and really help them. And, and I, I want to encourage not just younger pastors. We have older pastors who have that sure. that thinking as well. Absolutely. You are not better off going it alone. Your ministry can be a very rich blessing to others, and that can be reciprocated back to you as well. Absolutely. Well, you brought up some of your uh, your, your your personal background and, and early years in your ministry. Let's, let's back up a little bit. And uh, just as a kind of purely human interest thing, let, let's talk about you. Uh, I think you have kind of an interesting background for someone in this position in that you weren't raised in a Christian household. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after you came to know Christ, you spent several years in a ministry context that didn't necessarily always emphasize things like careful Bible exposition (laughs) and long-term discipleship. Is that maybe a kind way of putting it? (laughs) 
so, so just tell us, share with us a little bit about your background, how you came to know Christ, how God used those early years in ministry to shape you and to prepare you for the role that you're in today. Sure, I grew up not far from here, uh, about here, an hour south. Here being Arlington, here being Heights, Arlington Illinois. Heights, correct. Mm-hmm. Resource Center here, uh, sitting here in my office. I uh, grew up about an hour south of here. At, at that time, was a small town. Now it's not. Uh, Oswego, Illinois, was okay. born in Aurora, and which is just a few miles north of Oswego. Uh, was born um, the youngest of three. My my brother and sister had a different father than me. Their dad died when uh, my sister was 14 months old of Hodgkin's disease. Mm. Uh, a few years after that, my mother married my father, who I never knew. He, he left when I was two. Uh, she married my stepfather, who was 20 years older than my mother when mm. I was five. So that was an interesting dynamic sure. there. He had grown up during the Depression, hated the fact that I didn't eat all my dinner. <laughs> thought that was like, you know, the, the unpardonable sin. But we, we were a good family in the sense of uh, humanly good, but sure. uh, we, we never went to church. I, we, I can't remember a time when we ever uh, prayed together. We, we didn't really talk about the Lord. It just wasn't a part of our lives. Uh, 17 years of age, a friend of mine who'd been sharing the gospel with me for a few years invited me to church, and it just so happened to be, uh, and I'm thankful I heard the gospel there. But but it's not a church I would recommend today. But it's where God sovereignly ordained that Mike Hess would hear the gospel right. as a 17-year-old boy. Went to church that morning in my stonewashed jeans and a pink Dockers t-shirt. <laughs> and uh, the preacher that day shared the gospel, made me come forward in front of everybody, in front of the church. Okay. Said, you raised your hand. You got to make this public. Get up here. Get up here. And I just swore up and down, he's not talking to me. And, he, and then he explained who I was, the young man back there, tall, uh, hair combed to the side, <laughs> pink T-shirt. It had to be me. So I had to come forward in front of God and everybody there at the church. And that was a King James-only, independent, fundamental, man, we were against so many things, we didn't know what we were for. <laughs> right. And, but God used that in my life and, and went away to a college like that, a very ultra- We've used the terminology before, what we would call hysteric fundamentalist sure. type of institution. Very revivalistic in its methodology. Correct. Sure. Decisional in, in much of its evangelism and, and not decisional in the sense, because you have to decide to, to come to know Christ. Sure. Don't misunderstand me. But um, decisional in, in almost concocting and manipulating decisions out of people. Sure. And maybe and, prioritizing decisions over discipleship. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, met my wife through that. Again, God working things together in, in such a way, orchestrating things in, in a way that only he could. And, and, and through a number of things, opened up our eyes to this, that this just isn't the kind of Christianity we find that gels with Scripture. And uh, God used that in many ways to show me the danger of... Well, I wouldn't so much call it legalism. I would mm-hmm. call it Phariseeism. That would say, I have these rules. I have these standards. And, and you know, maybe they're good for you. And, and maybe it's good for you at this time in your life. But because I have them and you don't, therefore I'm better than you. Mm. Or I'm yeah. godlier than you. And what I found in Scripture is the goal is not 
so much that I have more rules than you, or I can say I don't do as many things as you do. The goal is Christ-likeness for God's glory. And so I found myself in this, you know, this, this kind of rabid form of fundamentalism, realizing I had a lot of rules, but in my heart, I was not being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Interesting. And the more I read scripture, in particular the New Testament, I realized, you know, this, this just isn't the end game. This isn't the goal. God wants us to become more like Christ. That's a little bit of that. And then through a number of God-ordained events, ended up in a GRBC church and uh, served as a deacon, got a lot of training in that um, in that realm, and then uh, became a pastor in Southern Illinois, then on to Iowa, and then here we are after years of serving on the Council of 18, our governing body. Um, God led to this position. Who are a few of the writers, pastors, and theologians that have been uh, especially helpful to you in shaping your theology and kind of just kind of your worldview? Well, it would it would really depend upon the subject and and kind of the branch of theology we're referring sure. to. So what what God did in those years of, of coming out of that, I kind of had to reprogram my thinking biblically. I had to really come to know the Bible for, for myself, not reading it through the lens of rules and, and manipulation, but reading it in the sense of, you know, this is God's word, the way God speaks to us today. And so God in his goodness introduced me to some good writers. And uh, I would say, let's start with the area of sanctification, just growing to become more like Christ. I'm not sure anybody has had more of an impact on me than than Jerry Bridges, uh, especially his his helpful book, uh, Discipline by Grace, and then The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, had such a succinct, very pithy, grace-centered way of writing that that helped me understand that a little bit more. And contrasted, uh, I'm sure, with correct. The, <laughs> <laughs> right. the, the context that you were coming out right, of. Right, right. If you go in the area of like theology, systematics, uh, obviously uh, a Millard Erickson, and again, by saying these names, it's not a blanket endorsement of everything they would be persuaded to stand for. But he helped me quite a bit. Um, Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology helped me to understand how to explain theology in a succinct and and yet understandable way, but that's very devotional. Yeah. I thought he was helpful with that. Sure. And again, not agreeing with everything that he wrote. Uh, some older authors that really helped me, uh, J.C. Ryle had a, had a very, again, pithy way of explaining things. Uh a few years after, well, really my first couple of years into ministry, I was introduced to biblical counseling, and that helped me tremendously as a pastor. Uh, a couple authors in that, of course, Jay Adams, who kind sure. of pioneered that. But also uh, David Paulson has influenced me mm-hmm. quite a bit in his writings on on suffering and, and being compassionate with people. And uh, to go on... Probably no theologian has influenced me or impacted my thinking like probably D.A. Carson has. Okay, interesting. I've soaked in a lot of D.A. Carson. You want to go ecclesiology, probably a Mark Dever, uh, Jonathan Lehman. Uh, overall, biblical worldview, understanding scripture, <clears throat> and understanding uh, the importance of expository preaching, the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, John MacArthur has helped me quite a bit. 
in, in regards to understanding the the need to stand for truth. Um, and then one book early on, if I could recommend to guys out there early in ministry or maybe guys discouraged in ministry, two books. One would be R. Kent Hughes' book, Surviving the Success Syndrome mm-hmm. in Ministry. Get your hands on that book. That would be very helpful. And then uh, a little book that RBP publishes by Ernest Pickering for the discouraged pastor. Hmm. Every pastor here, one time or another, this, this little booklet would be very helpful for you to read that at, at some time. It's, it's compassionate, helpful, and uh, very hopeful. So that's, that, that's kind of a summary of that. That's good. I especially appreciate the RBP plug. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. That's, a, <laughs> that's an interesting collection of writers and thinkers it, it's fairly diverse, and, mm-hmm. and one of the interesting things about that is that y- you've been able to learn from a, a, a group of men and writers and thinkers that uh, come from a number of different mm-hmm. theological backgrounds. And uh, I think that's important for Christians in general, but especially pastors and ministry leaders to be able to do, mm-hmm. uh, to recognize that there's a swath of of biblical work and ministerial work out there that I can learn from, even if I don't necessarily come down uh, on the same exact conclusions that every single one of these men is going to come out with. Um, So within the GARBC, uh, you know, we we have a fairly um, specific doctrinal statement. I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we can maybe recognize that there are others that are doing good work for Christ, that that have ministries God is blessing, and whose works we can uh, learn from and appreciate, even if uh, we aren't just 100% on the same wavelength with them Mm -hmm. uh, theologically. Is is that a fair way of putting it? It is. It really is. And and God calls us to be discerning people, and and there's going to be, there's only one book, and I think I heard John Piper say this one time, there's only one book that you should agree with 100% of the time, and obviously that's the Bible. Yeah. So um, we have to, as pastors, understand really the broader evangelical context, what's going on out there, and then really just how to filter everything from the Word. Right. To be good Bereans, to search the Scriptures, whether those things are so, and to be very, not just well-read, but widely read. Right. Well, if we're going to search the scriptures, before we can do that, you have to have a hermeneutic or an interpretive approach that informs you when you come to the scriptures and and sort of guides you in your interpretation of them. Um, and, and that is vitally important to understand because some some when we do have other groups that uh, we may not see eye to eye with mm-hmm. or other thinkers or other speakers, what have you, Usually at the end of the day, those disagreements are going to come down to a matter of hermeneutics and different interpretive approaches. So um, why don't you just give us the elevator pitch version of good hermeneutics according to Mike Hess? How should we as Bible-believing Christians be approaching and interpreting the scriptures? Let me begin by saying this uh, to the young men out there or pastors out there. I believe... More than homiletics, more than your survey classes of different books of the Bible, the most, even more than the original languages, I believe, the most important classes you will take in seminary are hermeneutics, how to interpret the scripture. So here, here's what I think keeps you safe when, when you're studying the Bible. And keep in mind, 
when you're preparing a message or you're reading the Bible, keep two things in mind. Proper interpretation leads to proper doctrine. Proper doctrine, correct doctrine, leads to correct living. How do we get there? The safest way is is to simply figure out and work to find what was the original author trying to convey, what was his intent to convey to his original audience. That's what keeps us safe. Then we're going to know how to properly interpret a passage. So this is key for a number of issues we're facing today, not only in our circles, but in the broader world of Christendom and evangelicalism. Take, for instance, one of the most controversial issues, uh, Genesis 1, where a number of people are downplaying the importance of a correct interpretation of Genesis 1 and saying, well, it doesn't really matter if, if those are millions of years or billions of years. It doesn't really matter if death happened before sin, were there people before Adam and Eve. Just the principle or the allegorical principle of that passage is what's important. Well, let's get back to a good hermeneutic. A good hermeneutic teaches you what was the original author, Moses, trying to convey to his original audience, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Is there any possible way with a good hermeneutic, a good interpretation of Scripture, to ever come to the inclusion that Moses' intent was for the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness to understand Genesis 1 from a scientific, a secular Darwinian perspective, could you ever get there? No. And frankly, you cannot get there without playing mental gymnastics or playing fast and loose with the text. It's not just that issue. It's a number of other issues. You do that with the epistles. You have to do this with the Psalms, Proverbs, the narrative, the historical books, the law books, poetry, wisdom, apocalyptic literature, all of it. You look at that, and this is what will keep us safe in understanding the text the way God intended for us to understand. And keeping this principle in mind, a text cannot mean today what it did not mean then. So if the original readers would have never understood Genesis 1 to be millions or billions of years, then there's simply no way we should read that text today. That's what makes proper hermeneutics so essential and key. And that is why there, within Protestantism, there's, there's different groups. There are those who uh, would take maybe a Romans 4 or Colossians 2 and try to... Um, see in that passage or eisegete in that passage like infant baptism. Sure. Okay, then get back to a good hermeneutic. These are people we love. These are people we respect. We're grateful for them. In many cases. In many cases, right. And and we've learned a lot from them, and I'm thankful for how God uses them. But when it comes to hermeneutics on those key passages, key texts, it, it's just not solid. You, you cannot get that from there. And, and there's just simply no way with faithful hermeneutics that you're, you're going to get infant baptism from that. Sure. And, then, and then tie that along with, we believe that what we believe in regards to our doctrinal statement, we are persuaded that it comes from that hermeneutic. Right, right. So, so, so we've got various doctrinal conclusions that we mm-hmm. hold to as an association of churches and as individuals for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and some of those positions might be fairly controversial. In fact, increasingly that's the case mm-hmm. today. We, we take a stand on 
uh, marriage as being between mm-hmm. one man and one woman because that's that's how the Word of God mm-hmm. very clearly, straightforwardly depicts it. Uh, we take a stand on a complementarian approach to biblical gender roles, again, mm-hmm. because that's how Scripture very clearly depicts it. Correct. And in no case, I, was, I, I think it's fair to say this, um, in no case are we coming to the text with our presuppositions already sort of made up, you know, as if we had a bias toward one view or another. Now, to some degree or another, that may be unavoidable. Mm-hmm. But our intention is to come to the text, understand it as the original author intended it to his original audience, and then go from there. Mm-hmm. And and if that causes us to arrive at a conclusion that is controversial or unpopular, you know, so be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Luther would say, uh, our, our consciences are captive to the Word of God. Right. Yeah, amen. And even in those passages where the interpretation might be open to discussion, I, I think we would still say the meaning is singular. Exactly, right. And, and there may be multiple applications that could be sure. derived from that singular meaning. Right. But yeah. uh, what the author meant is what the author meant. Right, and that's a great point. And, and for instance, and in, in recently we've been working through Romans 6, the mm-hmm. beginning of Romans 6. And right. Is that talking about in particular water baptism or is that not talking about water baptism? But the point of the text is very, very clear. It's yeah. there. Yeah. And, and, you, and you can't have one meaning for one group and another meaning for Correct. another group. Yeah. Uh, you're saying authorial intent and original uh, the, the original meaning understood by the original audience is kind of the controlling factor right. there. And yeah. good interpretation will lead inevitably, I believe, to good preaching, which will lead to applications that are not just randomly chosen, but applications that are rooted in the text. Because no book in the world is more relevant than the Bible when it is properly interpreted. Mm-hmm. If listeners want to find out more about the GARBC or they want to stay informed about what the regular Baptist Network of Ministries is doing, where should they go? Yeah, great question. Uh, First of all, it'd be wonderful if you would uh, find us on Facebook and like our Facebook page, the GRBC. Also follow us on Twitter. Uh, We also have an Instagram account at Regular Baptist, I believe. Follow us there. You can see some of the happenings that are happening in the association. Uh, A couple other things that will keep you informed as to what's going on. Subscribe to the Baptist Bulletin. It's, It's not much per year to do that. If you're a pastor, I want to strongly encourage you to consider getting your church subscribed to the Baptist Bulletin. Go to baptistbulletin.org and you'll be able to maybe subscribe digitally or get the hard copy delivered to your church and home. Another thing would be to uh, possibly consider coming to our national conference in Des Moines the last week of June. Uh, We're going to be looking from a biblical, exegetical perspective on the subject of worship, not dealing with it from an emotional or subjective perspective point of view, but uh, what does the Bible really say about this subject that's so often debated? But keep in touch. We want to keep in touch with you and uh, get familiar with some of our social media outlets and our websites. And also, I'd encourage you to do this. Use regular Baptist Press materials. These are material materials you can trust. It's coming from the doctrinal standpoint David and I just talked about, and it would be a great benefit to your church as you endeavor to make disciples for God's glory.
All right, that about wraps it up for us for this episode. Uh, thank you, Mike, for your time. Thank you, David. I appreciate it very much. And thank you, listeners. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you for listening to the Baptist Bulletin Podcast. The regular Baptist network of ministries exists to make disciples through healthy local churches. If you like this podcast, subscribe to your podcast platform of choice. You can find out more about our ministries at garbc.org and follow Regular Baptist Ministries on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.